if density is so destructive, why does New York City have 330,000%, 330,000% more deaths than Seoul, South Korea, which is more populated and 1.5 times more dense than New York City? And then people will be like, well, South Korea got lucky. South Korea didn't get lucky, mofo. They are next to China and had the second highest case rate in the world at one point. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of We Hate Politics, a podcast where we don't really hate politics. We just hate what it does to policy. My name is Brandon McCoy. I am joined once again by my lovely colleagues, Oren Jacobson and Aaron Carr. How are you two gents doing today? Swell, thank you. Doing well. Just had to wake up early for a podcast. Wake wake up early. Just for the record, it's 2.39 p.m. on the East Coast <sighs> on a Saturday. Pretty good. Well, I think something that we're all excited about is that we are joined by another incredible person that we all know uh, in various ways, uh, Ms. Katie Brennan, uh, who hails from the great state of New Jersey by way of Ohio and Missouri. Uh, Katie, how are you? I'm I'm swell, like Oren, because we both hail from the mid-best, but I am... (laughs) A convert, New Jersey convert, no zealot like a convert to the great state of New Jersey. And I live in Jersey City. Lives in Jersey City, uh, works in housing, like Aaron, kind of, right? Woo! Yes, I am full-time chief of staff for the Housing and Mortgage Finance Agency for the state of New Jersey. All that stuff that Aaron likes, we are the agency that makes that kind of stuff happen. And I am a part-time anti-sexual violence activist, part-time local community troublemaker. I know these three fools from the New Leaders Council Fellowship. Yes, the organization that we mentioned last time uh, that gives people the skills to put on public petting zoo uh, engagements. And make sure that we are able to <laughs> learn how to gain the skills uh, to fight for a better tomorrow. And so thank you once again. And I'll see. I'm you sure. would be shocked at how difficult it is to actually get a llama coordinated <laughs> properly to attack serious systemic issues in our society. It's but true. It is necessary to figure out. We will never give up on trying to involve the llama. Uh, the llama community. I'm going to give alpacas a chance. Yes, Absolutely. Please. So we uh, we're talking today about, funnily enough, uh, you know, the last episode we there was a joke that we had made saying that coronavirus had given up a 20 to 3 lead to racism, um, and so we end up talking a lot about sort of police violence and defund the police and systemic racism. But we originally wanted to start this podcast to talk about policy ideas because of the challenges that coronavirus and the pandemic were having on America. And that unique challenge seems to continue today as we see tons of countries uh, opening back up, getting back to normal. New Zealand's having soccer matches with you know fans in the crowd and stuff like that. And we're still here just sort of hoping that baseball can start, basketball can start, 
and seeing cases continue to rise now that there's hot spots in Florida and Texas and uh, even still California. And so, uh, you know, I, you know, New York and New Jersey, at least, at least for us, we, we went through all this already. Uh, we would like to not go through it again. Um, but if the rest of the country uh, continues to act in the way it does, it is rather, and uh, cases continue to increase, I know we're going to experience another increase here. And so we, we want to sort of just break it down to three uh, mini conversations. First is just sort of what is the pandemic playbook? What has it been so far? How has it worked? Uh, how has it not worked really? Um, then also, uh, did we reopen too soon uh, as an economy, as a society in various parts of the country? And what was the con- what were the consequences of that? Uh, and then also, what is the role of density and population size when it comes to the spread of COVID? Because early on, you had a lot of folks saying, well, you know, New York City is really dense and New Jersey is the densest state in the country. And that's why it's spreading so fast there. And uh, I think our good friend Aaron has some things to say about that. Uh, so before we get to all that, I guess let's just start where I said um, regarding the pandemic playbook. I mean, what, you know, Katie, as we've gone through this experience, uh, watching the way the federal government has responded. Um, do you feel like we've done what we should have done? And, you know, are we doing the things that other countries have done to open back up properly? Short answer, no. <laughs> Longer answer, first mistake, we didn't elect a woman president. Uh, I'm just saying New Zealand, Scandinavia, with the exception of Sweden, Sweden, who's really screwed this up. Um, common theme. That's all, that's all I'm saying there, but it's, I'm a big we, fan of Jacinda Ardern. I yeah. actually, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Woo New Zealand. Yeah. I think that there's probably a million PhD students getting their thesis right now on the various roller coaster of social conformity and um, the trends that we've seen and what it takes to get people to have behavioral changes. But short of all that, I'm going to skip over masks and that current kerfluffle and um, culture war and go to economics. I think that a big Something that Europe did very right was trying to keep people on payrolls. So while I think that the extra $600 is super beneficial, the extra $600 in unemployment benefits uh, is what I'm referring to. Mm -hmm. It's going to be devastating when that goes away at the end of July. We could have made it less complicated by just supporting the businesses and the people who work there instead of trying to put it on the people to then file for unemployment, et cetera. Mm. And that is what Germany did in the Great Recession. And it panned out really well for them. And so a lot of the European countries tried to do that this time around to to great success. It was more straightforward. It works. And then you don't find yourself in this debate of, okay, well, economic devastation is real. And I don't mean, oh, you know, like boo-hoo, the airlines or anything, but people that need jobs, which is most people, <laughs> and mm. and the ripple effects that that has on, on schools and everything else. And if we weren't making decisions based on getting people back into work, I think that we could be having a very different conversation about what containing the virus looks like. 
Right, so $600 per week uh, sort of additional payment on top of uh, existing unemployment insurance is going to be ending very soon. Um, a lot of sort of research that's gone on recently has shown that that is really propping up the economy right now and that once that ends, we're going to be in a whole world of trouble. And um, also even in, when, when it comes to the housing space, you know, once that ends and once the moratorium on evictions ends, we're just going to have a wave of evictions and going to have a ton of people who are getting kicked out of their homes uh, yeah. and have more crowding, you know, people who are going to move in with their parents. That's going to be more crowding, not density, not density, but more crowding. Yes, over um, and, overcrowding, very different than <laughs> than density. Um, and conditions to spreading <laughs> for, for spreading uh, COVID even further. And so, yeah, the economic argument is a good one uh, that I definitely agree with because we're we're having an argument that you know around reopening that's really unnecessary if our country is willing to do the things to keep people employed, keep businesses propped up. Uh, and have sort of a safety net system uh, where people were able to stay home. And it's almost like just having a pandemic version of paid sick leave, right? Like not having right. to choose between staying, uh, you know, going back to work or getting well. Like you don't have to choose between those two things. You can just get, you know, get well, stay safe, be where you got to be, stay home. And then once every, once you get the all clear and everything's good, then we can go back to work. Um, but we, we have failed to do that. So, you know, Oren, when you sort of think about the various experts that have been just completely ignored from Dr. Fauci on down the line, um, you know, what are the, some of the glaring issues that you see with regards to, uh, you know, the, the, the playbook and how it's been run so far? Yeah, it was a starting point, right? This is a healthcare crisis that's causing an economic crisis, and you can't fix the economic crisis unless you get the healthcare crisis under control. Um, and I think what Katie brought up is really uh, a, a smart a smart thought that's ahead of the curve, which says if you limit the disconnect between the employer and the employee, you buy yourself more time and have less complexity around the economic problem. But um, what's really fascinating about this entire experience has been that you know, what you need to do to manage a pandemic the right way is no, it's not easy to execute in and of itself. It's not simple. There are things that are within the control of a government like ours, given the resources we have, right? We have plenty of resources and therefore we have plenty of control. And there are things that you can influence. And so, you know, a government can control whether or not it's prepared. Was the United States government prepared? Did we listen to the experts about the risks of potential or the risk potential of a pandemic uh, from Barack Obama in 2014 to Bill Gates' very very famous TED Talk to people like Anthony Fauci. Did we have the materials and the PPE we needed? Absolutely not. The next thing is you can mobilize the country quickly, which we didn't do. Uh, the third thing is you need to get ahead of the virus and stay ahead of the virus, which we failed to do because of the first two. And then you don't create artificial timelines. If you think about what the president did, on, May th on March 13th, he, he uh, issued an emergency declaration, right? A national state of emergency. By March 24th, 11 days later, the president of the United States was signaling a desire to reopen the country by talking about having the churches full on Easter Sunday. So for 11 days, he followed the timeline of the virus. And after 11 days, he stopped. And the consequence of that impacts the, the fifth and final piece of this puzzle, which is public behavior. And when the leader of the free world with tens of millions of followers on Facebook who dictate or on, on Twitter and Facebook and social media who dictate the, the conservative media ecosystem, 
starts calling to reopen the country functionally 11 days after it sort of shuts down, you're sending a signal to half of America that there's not a problem and it's time to go. And by the way, he started off in January saying that the problem was totally under control. So the president did everything he could to ignore the problem and then signal to half of the country the wrong things, which then creates the wrong public behaviors. And while most other industrialized nations now have a pandemic well under control, we are in the middle of a second surge of the first wave. Absolutely. Um, and I, I even to go from federal level real quick, just down to local level, just there was a something I was realizing because um, I've been on the state's task force for reopen and recovery here in New Jersey. And folks were making the point of, you know, the, to your point, Orrin, of lack of preparedness and lack of sort of having the necessary resources and, you know, um, all the things you need to respond to the moment. You know, for New York and New Jersey, people were saying, wait a minute, didn't we like spend tons of money putting together like a 9-11 plan after 9-11 happened? Right? Like, didn't, didn't every single municipality in New Jersey was like responsible for putting together like, if shit hits the fan, here's what we're going to do. And people said, yeah, we did do that. What happened to those? And people, like literally had to dust them off because they were just in the back room, hadn't been updated. Like, I think, I think the law says they're supposed to be updated every three years. Yeah, we, we haven't done that. And so just it seems like even the last time we had a national crisis that deserves sort of a, a, a significant response from a majority or from some from big parts of the population, you know, we, we thought we learned our lesson of saying, OK, we got to be prepared next time. And, you know, we focused on preparedness for like a couple of years and then we forgot about it. And I'm, I'm worried if the same is going to happen this time. So, you know, Aaron, when, when we're thinking about preparedness and we're thinking about, you know, how we move forward from here. I know you have some points about uh, zombies that you want to make specifically. Oh, oh I'd love to. I'd love to talk about zombies. Yeah. I think you feel like you want to understand how America completely screwed up its response to COVID-19. Like you can read about it in the news or you can just watch that zombie show, The Walking Dead. And like that's the thing. Like pandemics are like zombies, right? Because in like both scenarios, there's something called exponential growth. And like – with exponential growth, one zombie becomes two, two zombies becomes four, four zombies becomes eight, right? And they just keep multiplying and multiplying and multiplying and doubling and doubling and doubling, like hundreds becomes thousands, thousands becomes millions. And like, before you know it, what do you have? You have a motherfucking zombie apocalypse. And like, that's what this is, right? Like, it's a story about zombies, but it's also a story about delay. And like, here's what I mean. So, like, there's this zombie virus, right, that breaks out in Asia and then in Europe. And you have this compound called America where, like, hundreds of millions of people are staying. And are, they're being led by this guy named Donald Trump. And, like, all of a sudden, over the horizon, in the, in the midst of this apocalypse, you see, like, a massive horde of zombies, right, like, walking toward the compound. And for some inexplicable reason, the leader, Donald Trump, is in, like, denial of this. And like, you know, you have like scientists, you have doctors, you have reporters, you have fucking anyone that's paying attention, literally trying to convince this guy, like to close the damn gates before those zombies can get in. But like Trump is delaying and like he's not responding and he's not coordinating and he's not applying pressure on the states to lock down in a timely fashion because he simply doesn't see these zombies as a threat. And like, 
by the time America finally closes its gates, like the zombies have already infiltrated this compound and it's fucking pandemonium. So there was the study conducted by Columbia University back in May that found at the time, if the United States had begun imposing social distancing measures one week, just one week earlier than it did, 36,000 fewer people would have died in the coronavirus outbreak. And like that was then when we had fewer deaths, that this 36,000 figure would be much, much higher now if this study were conducted today, because that's just how like exponential growth works. And that's why at the end of the day, as Oren said, you have to plan and you have to prepare. And most importantly, you have to act early. So with regards to the planning and preparation aspect of this, you know, it's to sort of tie all of your points together. You know, we, we did not think ahead as a nation on this very well, even though like we could see it coming from literally miles away across the, across the ocean. <laughs> and we could see what was happening in China and Japan and Korea and whatnot. Uh, we did not prepare. Um, we did not take the economic uh, or did not implement economic interventions uh, to allow people to engage in the behavior that we needed that needed them to to tackle the public health crisis. And so now we're at a point where we're saying, okay, our economy is suffering greatly. Uh, and if we continue to stay shut down, uh, we're going to go from, honestly, a recession into probably a depression here, right? More than one in two African-American adults does not have a job right now. Um, we know that the unemployment rate is like, it's, it's dropped recently, but it's only dropped for, when you look, when you disaggregate the data, it's only dropped for white Americans. It's actually gone up a little bit for Americans of color, workers of color. Um, and the, the challenge and the major concern when it comes to recessions and disruptive events like this is that it's going to worsen inequality, worsen poverty, and create, you know, that whole two Americas is going to drive that gap even bigger. And at a time when we are also reeling with and dealing with a lot of issues around um, systemic racism and policing, and this is on top of everybody's mind, you would hope that that would be the last thing anybody wanted right now was to have a worsening of racial inequalities and disparities between uh, groups and for communities that are already marginalized and disenfranchised. So, but is that really the last thing that somebody wants? I mean, if we're being honest, no, there's not. there is one guy who actually, I think, wants that because he wants to play into the fight, and that's why we're we are reopening too soon. And I was going to ask the question: Are we reopening too soon? But I don't even think it can really be a question, right? Like we clearly have reopened too soon. Even though you have states trying to like sort of pull it back now and shut down, and you know you have folks who two weeks ago were saying, ah, you know, masks are no big deal. Now like signing laws saying everybody needs to wear a mask in public. Clearly, we reopen too soon. Not only do we have the pandemic getting worse, not only do we have the economic crisis getting worse, but we also have just general trust in government getting worse. Right? No one sees leadership. Nobody sees somebody out there saying, here's what we got to do. Here's when we got to do it. Here's how we got to do it. And if we follow these steps, we'll be okay. And I want to play a quick clip because uh, this is from like a week or two ago, but it was um, a clip from an individual who was testifying or just giving like community comment at a, um, at a, at a town hall meeting in Florida. And I just want to play it and then have <laughs> Katie respond to it first. Then we'll go from there because it goes off the rails real quick. Every single one of you that are obeying the devil's laws are going to be arrested. And you 
doctor are going to be arrested for crimes against humanity. Every single one of you have a smirk behind that little mask, but every single one of you are going to get punished by God. You cannot, you cannot escape God. You cannot escape God. I'm going to say that again. You cannot escape God, not even with the mask or six feet. Okay, six feet, like I said before, is military protocol. You're trying to get the people to train them. So when the, the cameras, the 5G comes out, what? They're, they're going to they're gonna scan everybody. We got to get scanned. We got to get temperatured. The kids have to go to school with masks. Are you insane? Are you crazy? I think all of you should be in a psych ward right the heck now. Because none of you, none of you know what the hell you are all talking about. This is insane. And then you want to open this meeting with a prayer to God. Are you praying to the devil? Because God is not listening to that prayer. Because all of you are practicing the devil's laws. What happened to Bill Gates? Why is he not in jail? Why is Hillary Clinton not in jail? Why are all of, the, all of these pedophiles that are demanding you all to, to listen to their rules, why are they not in jail? Oh, is it because you're part of them? Thank are you, you part of the deep your state? Time has expired. The deep state is going Ma'am, down. And if any of you are morning. in the deep state, you're going down with it. So again, that was during a town council meeting just about the pandemic. There's a lot going on there. <laughs> and that has nothing to do with actual public health or safety but i would argue maybe i'm maybe i'm giving too much credence to this but there's a lot of folks who when they're they're viewing the shutdown and they're viewing sort of you know state uh, orders for public health uh, you know requirements they're going down those rabbit holes and if we have a significant portion of our population that is that are going down those rabbit holes in response to just basic like hey, be safe, wear a mask, wash your hands, keep distance. What does that mean for where we are as a nation when it comes to being able to act uh, as one, act together, act in community to address massive shared problems? Uh, I don't know. I, was, I said, Kate, you should take that first, but anybody can really take it because that's a big question. Yeah, please, anyone <laughs> feel free to join in with the me and and the grace of God and the and the devil's laws. I you know I hope that she. It, it would be easy for me to sit here and say, well, I hope to God the next time she has to have a surgery, this the surgeon's not sneezing onto her kidneys and is wearing a mask. But I I don't know that that's useful here, and because ultimately I think it's about people being scared and self interest, and I, I suppose that's why. I brought up the economics first because, of course, I think that mm-hmm. it's a public health crisis. And in before, of course, I think that there's a lot of health interventions that we could have done and we could have done large scale testing and tracking, which also sounds sort of zombie apocalypse um, dystopia to people. But I think that it's that being afraid and self-interest that makes people worry and have a lot of these concerns. But that said, I also think that, you know, if you look at the polling, most people are not like that. Most people don't think that masks are the devil's laws, and most people do think that they're helpful. And I, so I don't, I think we need more mask compliance, certainly, but I don't want to let don't want to overreact. Uh, yeah i don't want to overreact or not see the kind of forest for the trees there what i will say that if 
you all have never been to a public meeting, that's the kind of joy that you can find <laughs> and highly recommend. It's a great time. Please go participate in your local governments. <laughs> yeah, yeah I definitely agree with that. That's not off the wall comments are not are nothing new uh, at town council meetings. But I guess like the, the thing I'm trying to get to is like when it comes to the pandemic, high level of coordinated activity is required for success. Yeah. Right. Like, and if you even have 2% of the population just like being like, nah, I'm not with that. Like it undoes everything else. Um, and, and to that end, Brandon, I mean, I, yes, I think this is kind of where the, the real benefits of say big government come out of what is what is effective at scale? What is big at scale? The kind of code words that we talk about for tech industries all the time. The government. If you need to do something really big like social security or ending a pandemic, what you want is big, serious, effective uh, effective government. And we didn't have that leadership. Yeah, I mean, Aaron, is this lady like, did she fall into your zombie argument here? <laughs> you know, I'm. Uh, she's obviously like most people to Kate, Katie's point are, are not like her but you know at least 25 30 percent of the population is highly influenced right by trump and the far right right just like look at the rallies and i think it's important for people to understand that trump doesn't want to fight a pandemic war right like he wants to fight a culture war and like a pandemic war is something that like the trump and the far right are not going to win especially now that so many people are infected and so many people are are dead due to uh, his initial mismanagement. So the politics here are now nearly impossible. And like, if he all of a sudden started telling his supporters and the public to take the pandemic seriously and to wear masks and do the right things, he'd basically be taking ownership of a crisis that he himself had made considerably worse um, through his own mismanagement just a few months before an election. So there's really only one path forward here for Trump and um, the right, and that is to resort to base politics. And I think we're seeing a manifestation um, of that. But, you know, as uh, polls show, the Democrats deserve a lot of credit here uh, because they've been taking the pandemic, like a lot of the, I would say Democrats, but blue cities, blue states have been taking the uh, pandemic way more seriously than Republicans. And the far right is just trying to turn this into a culture war. And my advice to the left is that they should not take the bait, right? Like get tested, not because you hate Trump. Get tested because you want to know if you're sick. Wear a face mask, not because you are a Democrat. Wear a face mask because you are not an idiot, right? Like I've seen people tweet in response to like these people and just like the explosion of cases in the South saying things like, the South is getting what they deserve. Don't be that individual because those that will suffer the most in states like Texas and Oklahoma and Florida, they're going to be low income people, right? And people of color, mm -hmm. uh, the mm -hmm. people that uh, the Democrats profess to represent. So let them play their culture war. We have to fight a pandemic war uh, and we need to stay focused and we need more testing. We need more mask wearing. We just need to stay on message and on point. And, you know, Oren, as, as I guess to Aaron's point, how, how do you weigh sort of the role of people ignoring guidelines versus just personal behavior here? And what, what are the policies that we should be really looking to implement uh, beyond the things that we've already discussed? Yeah, I mean, the reality, unfortunately, is this isn't really a policy question anymore. It is a political question. Mm. Um, and electing Joe Biden on November 3rd is not going to fix, you're not going to fix the situation. Now, 
the Biden administration, in theory, could do the right things at the federal level, right? A nationally coordinated, well-resourced um, response, but that's never going to undo the political battle line that's already been drawn and the way that the the pandemic has fallen along partisan lines, unfortunately. So if somebody says to you, you know, I want to understand what's happening and what we can do, but I don't want to talk about politics, then what you're saying is, I don't want to understand the truth. Give me something else besides the truth to make me feel better. And the truth of the matter is, you know, Katie, you talked about the the group of women running these countries who have done really effective jobs. Um, and that's like very accurate. We have to be honest with ourselves and with people that we literally elected the single worst human being possible to manage this specific problem. You need to trust science to manage this specific problem. I wish this were actually a zombie apocalypse because Trump could see zombies and he wouldn't think that scientists were just making stuff up but he doesn't trust science. You have to have competent people running your government and not lackeys, not loyalists. You need to tell people the truth. Donald Trump struggles with that as a very gentle way of speaking about Donald Trump's uh, relationship with fact. You need to be disciplined. You need to be focused. You need to be thorough. You need to stay on the ball day after day after day doing hard things, none of which... Donald Trump has ever demonstrated the ability to do. And because of the impact that he has had on the body politic, in particular, the body politic in the right of America, which, by the way, he is an outgrowth of a 40 to 50 year intentional campaign to erode the very foundation of trust in government because of what he's done to the body politic, even Decent Republicans, with the exception of really Mike DeWine and Larry Hogan, who deserve a lot of credit for sticking their neck out and doing this differently, most Republicans have been trapped between the ecosystem of, the, of media on the right, the base that Donald Trump has cultivated, and the pandemic. And they do not deserve to be given any uh, you know, consideration or care over the fact that they're trapped because they're making decisions to act in cowardly ways that are influencing uh, and destroying people's lives. But that's the reality. And the reality they're in is because of the president. So this is not a policy question moving forward. It's not, it's not like everybody wear a mask or let's go back to, to, you know, some type of uh, lockdown. In many ways, we will be unable to implement the types of policy changes we need because we cannot undo the political damage that's already been done and the underlying uh, reality of that political damage to our culture. I definitely agree with you that it's a political question first. I guess the only way that I would view it as a policy question is that um, one of my overarching frustrations with leaders and elected officials of all stripes and of all parties lately has been just sort of a general putting the cart before the horse when it comes to what are our options right now for improving the situation. So, you know, you have folks who say, okay, we need to reopen. Well, if you want to reopen, like we've already said, you got to get control of the virus, right? Like you can't put one before the other, one leads to the other. Uh, right now you have a lot of states that are experiencing uh, significant um, economic challenges because they're just, you know, revenue is falling off the table and they're, they're having to cut, 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 cut. 
uh, and, you know, pass austerity budgets, at least they think they have to do that. And so, you know, just for a very specific example, New Jersey's trying to borrow and bond for five or $10 billion so it can avoid those cuts and, you know, avoid having to make um, damaging spending cuts to that will always and have historically and will always fall on people of color and, and uh, marginalized communities the most. And you have people saying, well, we don't want to bond. We don't want to borrow. OK, well, then for the past 10 years, you should have been saving more money. right? You should have been putting more money away in your rainy day fund and budgeting in a more responsible fashion. You don't you don't get to make decisions that you haven't acted in a manner up until now to give you the leeway to do so. Right. You, if you want to be able to make certain decisions, you have to plan to be able to make those decisions. And we have not planned to make certain decisions in this country uh, and we just want to be able to do what we want to do, regardless of the decisions that we made in the past. Yeah, I'm with you. And I guess my point would be, and again, you know, Katie, Katie brought up all these women who have been pretty masterful at managing the situation. In fact, I don't think there's a single woman who's managed this poorly. And I can run through a long list of dudes who have uh, done very bad jobs at this. Not fair, because there's a lot more dudes running countries, but yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, also, I'm, I'm similarly confident that if their distribution of leaders was totally flipped, We'd have uh, as a ratio, yes, yeah, totally flipped as a ratio. <laughs> we'd we'd have much better outcomes globally. But but here's the thing, Brandon: the policies and the approaches that are necessary are known. Are known. Mm-hmm. Katie brought up what Europe did in response to the Great Recession, which it then did again in response to the pandemic. Those things are known. There is a playbook. Uh, contact tracing, test, trace, and isolate is not some new invention of like South Korea in February of 2020. It's a known thing. The things that we should be doing are known things. The reason we are not doing them is because of the reason we started this podcast in the first place, which is politics. Yeah, I mean, like some people will say that like, it would have been impossible for America to get this right. Like we're too individualized, we're too localized, we're too decentralized. And to that I say, bullshit. Like people forget that Germany, a country that is also very decentralized, fared infinitely better than not just America, but most countries in Western Europe. And like Angela Merkel didn't overcome the downsides of decentralization by appending it. She overcame it by forging and building consensus among the governors of the states in her country by opposing one of the most aggressive lockdowns in Europe. And like, this is what the president of the United States obviously should have been doing all along and not just with supplies, tests and masks, but with stay at home orders and business closings. And people think, well, don't lockdowns, business closings, all of that fall under the jurisdiction of states. And like, while that's technically true in practice, it's way more complicated than that, because who has the power of the purse? Right. Congress has the power of the purse and Congress has the power to make spending conditional. So like Trump and Congress could have used if they wanted to, which they obviously don't, could have used a carrot and stick approach right, to get over this hump of decentralization and deliver a centralized response. And like the carrot would have been providing the states with the necessary resources right, to make it through a lockdown. And the stick would have been to punish states that did not comply. Like this is how you get states in a federalist system to coordinate in a unified fashion if you have the political will to do so. And that is what has been thoroughly, thoroughly lacking 
Um, and you just cannot over like you cannot overstate how important it is to have a centralized and coordinated response because pandemics don't give a shit about your localities. Pandemics don't give a shit about your states and pandemics don't give a shit about your borders. If one state fucks around, it fucks all of the other states around it. And that's why we need a better national government, right, to provide oversight, to set standards and to act as the adult in the room. Well, here's the winning deep. is easy. <laughs> Leading is harder. <laughs> Go ahead, Owen. Well, here's the deep irony of all of that. The Republican Party has been warning of European style government coming to our shores for a long, long time. And I want to zoom out past Germany, which is, as you mentioned, a, a federated system, not that dissimilar to ours. If you think about the European Union as a federated system, which, by the way, it is with countries that don't agree with the other countries, which they don't, it starts to sound a lot like the states in America. And the European Union, right, is traditionally a, a government with limited power over or working with all these other states, these other countries. The European Union collectively kicked America's ass on the response to the pandemic, both in terms of healthcare and in terms of economics. And it's frankly not even close. It's a similar landmass with more people, with less coordination uh, and less uh, centralized power built into the structure of the European Union itself. And they somehow managed to make us look like, a, like an undeveloped country mm -hmm. with no money, no resources and no capacity. And the reality of the situation is America really didn't even fail. America never even tried. Yep. The president of the United States never even tried, which really is the biggest failure of all. To take that one step further, Orin, I think it's also important to highlight, I, I like that analogy, that the it's not that the individual countries, in our case states, gave up their individuality or their own choices. They had to make one as the European Union and the borders that exist there, but France decided it wanted that you couldn't go further than a, a few kilometers. Belgium decided that you could have your little germ pod of four people. You know, they all had their own decisions while making one as a collective, and I think that that does speak well to what we had here. And they're way denser than us. <laughs> also, Angela Merkel is a scientist. So take that for what it's worth. Wait, Trump's not, <laughs> not everybody's not everybody's <laughs> lawyers or, or bankers or business people who can't really make good decisions when it comes to epidemiology. Merkel's a boss. Like she's she crushed it. She has. She's like really I mean <laughs> they're not out of the woods yet, but man. <laughs> the, like the, the, biggest, the biggest thing for me here is just like you, like you said, Oren, like we know what to do on a variety of things here. We, we know what works, um, but the political will to do what works is really driven by A, who gets credit and B, who gets, who wins the riches, right? Like there's, I mean, you and I, we, we were talking before, you know, when, when all this was popping off and the recession was really getting worse and we were, we were kicking back and forth ideas on how we should respond from a fiscal uh, standpoint. You know, the Federal Reserve and um, the Treasury have like really done incredible things to like make sure that things have not gotten worse. Like our response has been bigger and more robust than it was during the Great Recession. But as we're seeing, the beneficiaries of most of that action 
are already very wealthy individuals and corporations. And the folks who need it, which are small businesses and workers who need to be able to stay home in order to, you know, avoid getting sick, are like still like begging for scraps here. And so it's it's really a situation of who's in charge here. Uh, what is the priority? What is the goal? And at least you can say in other countries, hey, the goal was honestly to have a good response to a public health crisis that limits how many people get sick and limits the economic damage to the country as a whole. It doesn't seem like that was the goal here at all. It doesn't seem like the folks who are in charge here ever had that as a primary consideration. And I think some folks will say to me, oh, that's not fair to them. They were trying their hardest. But, you know, actions speak louder than words. The proof is in the pudding. And the folks who've been making off scot-free and, you know, doing really, really well, you know, billionaires have done really, really well over the, over the course of 2020. They've made so much money over the course of 2020. How is that possible during the biggest crisis that we've had in over a century? And, you know, now the Fed is buying corporate stock and corporate debt. Right. So, so the, the small handful of Americans who own lot, who own the majority of the invested funds into our stock market are seeing their wealth driven up by the fact that the federal government is now subsidizing the debt of corporations and locking in profit for private investors. And you can already see what's going to happen 12 months down the road, two years down the road, the replay of the Great Recession, the replay of the post-Great Recession reality is going to play itself out here, which is to say the people at the bottom are going to continue to get crushed and the people who already control assets and resources are going to, get, are going to gain from everything that happens. And from a policy perspective, that's going to make a lot of the policies that were considered sacrosanct or super radical just a couple of months ago necessary. We're, we're going to have to have a reparations program. We're going to have to have a baby bonds and a, you know, national healthcare program in order to prevent just chaos and calamity in the lives of the majority of the residents of this country. If we don't do those things, people are just going to suffer and they're, they are not going to recover, right? They're, they're never going to get back to where they were now. And to be honest, we never actually fully recovered from the great recession. Most, most, most places still did not recover fully. We already have about 10% of homeowners entering forbearance. Already, right. Correct. And that's before things started going up in the other states. And, um, you know, and and depending on where you are, the non-payment of rent is, it can be low or it can be 20 or 30%. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that the wave of evictions, while housing court has opened a lot of places, and while you may not still you may not be able to be physically removed from your home, the second that you can, it will have already been processed. The moratorium didn't mean in almost anywhere except for one or two states that the filings stopped. Mm-hmm. So the all the eviction filings have still been continued. The foreclosure filings are still continuing. You just cannot be removed yet. So mm-hmm. it's going to be a cliff. Right. And so once all of the sort of CARES Act programs end, we're going to have a wave of reality that's going to hit us that people just are not really talking about in the ways we need them to, because they are rightfully, you know, preoccupied with a lot of the challenges that are still happening because of the, of the health crisis. But we're just, it just seems like uh, we're, we're really in big trouble here if we don't make different decisions, if we don't think bigger and if we don't stop making excuses for the same old, same old, same austerity policies, same austerity budgeting 
that has only fueled and made worse all these crises. And so, but let's, but let's, let's, let's add one more thing here to, to consider, right? You have, you have what's going to happen to people who are getting unemployment benefits right now and the massive unemployment we still have. You have the possibility that there's going to be more layoffs moving forward because we might have to shut stuff back down or because businesses are going to have to sort of pull back a little bit. You have the impact on tenants and a possible wave of evictions coming. Yeah, you know, Aaron and Katie, you know a lot more about this than I do. And uh, you have a real reckoning that will eventually come and eventually could be six months. It could be a year. It could be two years on the uh, commercial real estate market because there are going to be so many leases that have to get renegotiated and so many debts that are going to be outstanding and need to get paid be, uh, from the expectation of rents. The way that companies are going to set up their workforce moving forward are going to be dramatically different for an extended period of time. And you could have another major ripple just from what happens on the commercial real estate market with commercial paper, which, by the way, could end up forcing the government to buy mm -hmm. all the debt up to prevent any type of uh, uh, fallout from it, right? To essentially prevent the natural market forces from taking place. And so, you know, we've, we've been teasing that we'll eventually get to a conversation on fake free markets, but the free market would say, let it all go. Now, mm -hmm. we don't like the idea of letting it all go because we know who's going to get harmed most by it. But the reverse is that American policymakers continue, as I said before, to prop up support and transfer wealth to those who already have it because of how much systemic contagion they create for everybody else. Absolutely. It is, uh, what's the term? Shock, shock and awe capitalism? Not shock and awe. Shock doctrine? Shock, shock doctrine. doctrine. All right, that book. Um, it is that all over again, and we do it every freaking decade, like clockwork. Naomi yeah. Klein, fellow <laughs> at Rutgers right now. She's at a, oh, she, she is at Rutgers. She just came out with her awesome book. Wait, where is it? It's behind me somewhere. Uh, On Fire, which is all about, um, you know, climate change and the shock doctrine capitalism of climate change. And so it's just, it's a lot going on right now. But, um, you know, I, one of the, one of my favorite things during this pandemic, though, has been the what was for a very very long time a one man army that was going against the the well worn and well echoed line that density was making the pandemic worse. Everybody was saying this, mayors were saying it, governors were saying it, the president was saying it, and there was one man early on who kept on tweeting and saying bullshit. And kept on pointing to other countries like South Korea and Singapore and other dense nations saying they're dense and they don't have a tenth of the cases we do. And that man was Aaron Carr. Aaron, I know this has been in your craw going on three months now of people saying, hey, you know, density and having the subway system and having just so many people packed in together is the reason why COVID spread so quickly and got so, so out of hand in New York and you were like, nope, it's because we weren't prepared. Do you want to just explain that point a little bit? Yeah. I mean, all we have to do is just look at the data. And for some reason, very few people were looking at it at the beginning. I think the narrative is starting to, to turn because there's been some good studies that have come out that I'll talk about. But, you know, density has always been used as a convenient scapegoat for just about everything. 
And in the context of COVID-19, governors like Governor Cuomo have been looking to it to deflect attention uh, from their own delayed response. And I know Cuomo is beloved for his excellent press briefings, but the science community recognizes that Cuomo's response, like many governors around the country, um, was unequivocally delayed. So Cuomo has called New York City's density, quote unquote, destructive. And what you have to know about that is Cuomo is wrong. So like all you have to do is like look at New York City. Like if density is so destructive, you should find a strong positive correlation, right, between the density of the five boroughs and the number of COVID-19 fatalities and cases. But there's none to be found because Manhattan, which is not just the densest county in New York City, but in all of America, has the lowest case and death rates in New York City, significantly lower than uh, the borough of Staten Island, right, which is like 25% of Staten Island single family. It's like low density. And Staten Island has more cases and more deaths if you, uh, per capita than Manhattan. Uh, if density is so destructive, right, like New York City shouldn't have over 400 times the fatalities of San Francisco, which is the second uh, densest large city in the U.S. And people will say, but New York City has 10 times the population of San Francisco. Right. 10 times the population and over 400 times the fatalities. Again, yeah. if density <laughs> is so destructive, why does New York City have 330,000 percent? 330,000% more deaths than Seoul, South Korea, which is more populated and 1.5 times more dense than New York City. And then people will be like, well, South Korea got lucky. South Korea didn't get lucky, mofo. They are next to China and have the second had the second highest case rate in the world at one point. They didn't reduce their density. They planned, they prepared, and they acted early. Right. If you're testing, if you're t tracing, if you're social distancing, uh, density matters very little. And I would implore people to go online and look up this study uh, that shows that urban density. It's a study of 900 U.S. metropolitan counties. And it found that not only is there no link between the uh, spread of corona and density, it actually, the link is that there's low, a lower COVID-19 death rate in very dense places. So it has found the opposite of what people are saying. So stop blaming density, sit down and eat your broccoli. Um, all right. Good, good discussion. <laughs> good discussion. <laughs> So, but can we, but, but we, go ahead, go ahead, Orin, go ahead. Uh, uh, you know, so, so South Korea and America had the first, their first case, their first COVID case on the exact same day. January 20th, 2020 was the day that South Korea saw its first positive case and the day that America had its first positive case. Within two weeks, South Korea had already um, uh, uh, approved the test that they would end up using. They had already approved within two weeks and began a process to scale it nationwide. And by the time Donald Trump ordered a state of emergency on March 13th, they had tested 345,000 people. In that same time, America only tested 20,000. If we had moved with the speed that they had with the same per capita measurement, we would have tested 1.5 million people. So to Aaron's point... Uh, right, Seoul, South Korea, that place that um, Donald Trump claimed he knew so much about, uh, more than anybody else, right, is an incredibly dense place. The problem isn't density. 
The problem is ultimately the response by the governments involved. And by the way, including the governor of New York and the mayor of New York City, who was actively encouraging bad behavior in early March that helped spread the disease faster through New York City. Yeah. And even, I, you know, I had made the point before, that's the difference between density and crowding. And crowding can be problematic, but crowding can also be overcome by safe practices, yep. right? And as long as you wear a mask, you know, we, we've seen it with the protests and people said, oh God, and even I thought, I'm like, okay, we're going to have a huge spike because of the protests. The spike's not, you know, from what we can tell and what you know, some research has been done lately, the spikes aren't coming because of the protests. The spikes are just coming from people going and having dinner and still hanging out with their friends on, you know, going to the beach and just acting like life is normal. But like the places that have had protests, you know, New Jersey had plenty of protests, New York had plenty of protests, not seeing spikes here because people were wearing masks. And so, you know, proper practice is critical here, but crowding can be deadly if we don't do what we need to do. Just like density is not a terrible thing if we do what we need to do and if we accurately prepare and make sure we're doing what we got to do early on. There's a power plant. Uh, actually, sorry, it's not a power plant. There's a um, a factory in, uh, where was it? I think it was Nebraska, uh, the Smithfield plant, uh, they call it. And it has more. Cases. Oh, it's meat. It's a meat factory. It has more. They have, they found more cases, right, attributed to that plant than all of Taiwan. Like Taiwan has. 451 cases, the entire country of Taiwan, which has more than two, uh, 25 million people. This one crowded plant has nearly two times more coronavirus cases, right, than Taiwan, an entire country. So that speaks to your point about the crowding versus density uh, argument. Yep. And when I say crowding, I mean people within an apartment sometimes too. Yes, you can be forced to still be going to the Smithfield plant in Nebraska, another place that I've lived in my tour day, the Midwest. And um, But you can also be a low-income person who is also more likely to live in a intergenerational arrangement and not have enough space because you can't afford it. And that um, it's harder to be safe when you have to, when other people are not taking the necessary precautions, when there's no paid sick leave, when you're working at a crowded plant. Um, that's, that's another aspect of the crowding. Yeah. The entire the entire density debate, which, by the way, Aaron, I will put myself into the category of originally wondering if density plus public transportation was the particular combination. And maybe it ended up being public transportation plus uh, essential workers as being part of the combination up front. But it, it, it underlies the point that in America, because of the narrative we have about America, we we can't look around the rest of the world and take any information from the rest of the world as guidance, right? It, it only took about five minutes of critical thought the first time you said this to me for me to be like, oh, wait, density can't be the problem because if density was the problem, all these other massively dense areas would be seeing similar levels of outbreaks to what we've experienced mm -hmm. in New York City at that time or New Jersey or whatever it was. 
But like that requires me to be willing to look beyond our shores and say that something happening outside of our shores should be listened to. And America does a pretty uh, damn poor job of considering anything non, non-America centric as we explore ideas and policies. So I would like to know, because even though we are dealing with some massive challenges that are really making our daily lives difficult, it's in sort of a weird situation of dichotomy. Uh, life is still going on in a lot of ways. Uh, so what has been your favorite thing since the last time we spoke that you've engaged with, that you've done, that you've seen? It could be literally anything in the world. I just want to know what's the favorite thing that you've been doing lately that's given you uh, some joy as as we've been dealing with these couple of things over the last couple couple of months here, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask Aaron first. What's your what's your new favorite thing? Uh, I've been watching uh, The Sopranos. Finally got around uh, to watching it um, a few weeks ago. I've been been binge watching it over the past seven days. You know, Tony Soprano is a very complicated guy. On uh, one hand, he's a sociopath who kills a lot of people, and on the other hand, he likes ducks and horses. So very complicated. You should know that The Sopranos is basically a documentary of New Jersey political life, but you know, if if you ever have questions, just watch just watch seasons three and four, and you'll you'll be caught up pretty quickly. It's a good political system. Very good, Orin. What's your <laughs> new favorite thing? Uh, my new favorite thing is when you can find good in the bad, and lots of people are familiar at this point in time with the Deshaun Jackson story. Just quick note. If you think yourself, am I, am I going to get in trouble for posting a quote of Hitler? The answer is always yes. It's always going to be problematic. Uh, but I don't want to focus on the negative. I've said other things publicly and uh, about that. I want to just call out and uh, give kudos to Julian Edelman for what I thought was a, a very a very cool offer to Deshaun Jackson to, to go to Washington together, to go to the African-American uh, History and Culture Museum, to go to the uh, Holocaust Museum together and then to sit down and have a conversation afterwards. And given the fact that I don't think we're going to have that much sports in our life, uh, hmm. ESPN ought to think about, you know, bringing the camera crew around and filming that. Let's have more of those conversations as we get into hard, as we deal with hard things. Yep. And just in case anybody does not know, Deshaun Jackson, who's a wide receiver for the Eagles in Philadelphia, posted some quotes that were apparently from Hitler Maybe not, but whatever he thought they were, trying to justify some something. Not uh, fake, you know. fake Hitler quote with hardcore anti-Semitism. It's still bad. Still bad cocktail. Bad cocktail. <laughs> cocktail. That combination yeah, like of. That uh, <laughs> I'll just drink uh, a glass of water. <laughs> you and that goblet of water. Okay, uh, Katie, what is your new favorite thing? My new favorite thing is fulfilling my true, I'm, I'm actualizing as a millennial and I am combining Hamilton, TikTok, and cats <laughs> into one pinnacle of joy. Uh, you know, the, the cats can perform in the TikTok videos about Hamilton. They can listen to Hamilton. It's, uh, I can pretend that I can do a Skylar Sisters rap to Hamilton. It's, I've reached my peak. Honestly, TikTok is made for you because you, I don't know if Oren and Aaron know this, Katie has a theater background. Really? I don't think you would be surprised to learn that because (laughs) she's very good about 
being on stage and being at the center of the spotlight and knowing how to command it. So I look forward to Katie TikToks because you know what? Just happenstance, I downloaded TikTok last night at three o'clock in the morning because I couldn't sleep. And I was like, why am I doing this? This is the worst decision ever. But if you're going to be making TikTok videos, I will See, I, I don't know if they'll ever be for public consumption, but... Uh... Maybe, maybe for private consumption. Maybe Simone de Beauvoir <laughs> and Jacques Cousteau will make a an, an appearance. <laughs> Might be wonderful. Uh, for me, my new favorite thing is I came across this randomly. I was very upset that nobody told me about this. Netflix has a collection of episodes of Supermarket Sweep from the 90s, Ooh. from the 1990 to 1996 run. Uh, I believe this is in connection with it is about to have a reboot starring Leslie Jones as the host of the show. (laughs) But, you know, I I mean, I think I speak for a lot of millennials when like Supermarket Sweep is just like a staple of like mid-afternoon TV watching. Uh, For me, for whatever reason, it was on WGN all the time, that Chicago station that just broadcasts across the country, Oren. But the, the aesthetic is a very end of 80s aesthetic with some wild fashion choices that are still I'm like you know even at the time very very questionable but I was I was watching and I was just thinking this is a this is a game show that relies on somebody's knowledge of the layout of a supermarket and uh intimate familiarity with both popular and unpopular brands to the point where you know very obscure clues will let them know what to look for this is a capitalist uh, obstacle course at the end of the day. Is that bad? Oh, my <laughs> God. You ruined it. You ruined it. No, it's still amazing. Oh. I'm just saying, think about the, the knowledge you got to have to be successful at this show. Can you the far, right too. Can you far left just radicals far. just leave us one thing? Just leave us supermarket <laughs> yeah. sweep. Oh, I, I really want to go and do a sabbatical and do a whole research project on it, but I will spare everybody uh, that awful exercise. But Supermarket Sweep on Netflix, watch it, get ready for the Leslie Jones reboot, and have a good time. Um, well, thank you all. I think that was a fun conversation. We'll be back in, I guess, two or so weeks uh, on something else. I'm, sh- I'm sure something will happen between now and then. Uh, and if nothing does happen, nope. again, to fake free markets. All right. Thank you, folks. Be good. Be safe. Have a good week.